All right, so we're in Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. If you want to get coffee and all that stuff, it's all up there. Feel free to get what you need, refill, whatever. You won't bother me. Um, so we're in Luke chapter 23. Uh, so as the story goes, uh, Jesus has been uh, arrested. He's been tried and convicted by the Jewish Sanhedrin for uh, blasphemy. Um, they know that blasphemy isn't going to get him sentenced before the Romans. And so they bring him before the governor, Pontius Pilate, so that he could sentence him to death. They wanted Jesus to be dead no matter what. Um, he hears out the, the Jewish leaders and their, and their charges against uh, Jesus. And what he quickly realizes is that all the charges are completely false. They're twisted uh, in, in order so that uh, they would convict Jesus to death, so that he would sentence Jesus to death. He does his own interrogation and all of that, and, and he finds Jesus guiltless. Uh, Jesus then is sent over to Herod because Pilate's trying to get away from the problem, and, and he thinks Herod can probably solve this or at least pass the buck on to him. And this wannabe king ends up mocking him, and Jesus would not answer any of his questions. Now, do you remember what Luke is trying to show us here? What the gospel is telling us, what it's showing us. It's showing us that these puppet and religious leaders and governors, they could not see that Jesus is truly the Messiah. And that he truly is a, the king, not the kind of king and the Messiah that they wanted him to be, but he is exactly the king and the Messiah that we needed him to be. He is exactly the king that we would need him to be. He was the king that would set us free from the bondage of sin and would bring the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God and would bring us in through adoption into the family of God as sons. So this morning as we read our passage, this morning as we read our passage, I want you to notice a few things about this text. Number one, I want you to notice again how many times Pilate tells the crowd that Jesus is innocent. And also notice how many times he tries to release him. Okay? I want you to notice that. Second thing, I want you to notice the, the complete shift in attitude of the crowd toward Jesus. And then number three, I want you to take note of Barabbas. We'll talk about him in a few minutes. Barabbas and what happens to him. Okay, so let's look at our text this morning, starting in verse 13 in Luke chapter 23. Verse 13. Then Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Nevertheless, or never, or excuse me, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who has been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! 
a third time, he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they urgent, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand shall be granted. He released the man who had been thrown in the prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to see and to hear this holy inspired word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. So Luke chapter 23, I've already I've told us as we started chapter 23 a couple weeks ago that this is the pinnacle of Luke's gospel. He's, he's building up to uh, the cross, and we, we know the cross is coming. All of us, we're familiar with the gospels. We know the, the cross is coming. I mean, there's only a couple chapters left. We know it's here. However, we cannot escape the words and the actions that take place in this passage. We can't escape the, the words and the actions of, of sinful man. The worst moments in human history, where the gravest of sin is on display, revealing, revealing to us the, the capability of unredeemed humanity on full display. But also, there is something amazing that we are meant to see. Something amazing that we are meant to see taking place even in the depth of such deep darkness and wickedness and sin and depravity. We see salvation through judgment. A theme that, that's brought to us throughout the Bible where we see salvation come through judgment. You know the, those stories that you, that you hear on the news and, and, and you read about on the internet when, you know, when someone buys like an old house or, or they, they, they buy the rights to an old storage shed and, and somehow in the house or in the storage shed they find some amazing treasure, some, some painting or some rare document. You guys heard of those stories before? I'll give you an example. In 2005, uh, two brothers were renovating their father's house after uh, after he passed away. And when they began to tear into the walls, they found a famous painting. Uh, the, the famous painting actually was by, um, and I think most of you all know who this, this artist was, Norman Rockwell. They found a Norman Rockwell painting original in the wall, and the name of the painting was Breaking Home Tides. If you want to look at an amazing picture, it actually is kind of a sad picture, but it's an amazing picture. Uh, Breaking Home Ties. And, and in 2006, they sold that picture for... $15.4 million, the most expensive Norman Rockwell painting ever. And the story goes, and, and the, the, the boys had no clue, but their father was a, was a cartoonist back in the day, and, and he knew Norman Rockwell. And somehow he ended up with one of his original paintings, or he gave it to him, and who knows how it happened, but they ended up with these things. Now this is kind of like our passage this morning, where, where the, the least expected place you find a treasure when it seems to be the worst of the, of the worst, broken down home or a broken down barn or a useless storage shed that someone just 
abandoned. Let's just move past it. Let's clean it out. Let's get to the good. There's nothing good to see here like in this text because all we see is we see the sin of people and humanity at their worst. However, there is a treasure in this passage that is far worth more than any price paid for a painting here on this earth. There is salvation. There is salvation painted for us in this passage. So let's unpack it together and we'll get there. The first thing that we need to see in this passage is something that we highlighted a couple times last, last time we were together in Luke. And that is the innocence of Jesus. The innocence of Jesus. This is all part of the treasure. It's building up. Chapter 23 is all about the cross. Jesus is going to the cross. It's what the whole gospel is leading up to. Jesus up to this point in Luke's gospel has told us numerous of times that, that we are to remember that he is going to the cross, that he has a purpose in, in this life and why he came in the flesh is to die on the cross. And, and Luke is reminding us over and over again because he wants us to have certainty about the death of Christ. And that at first point is this, is that Jesus' death on the cross is not because he was guilty. He is saying this over and over to us because he wants it clear in our thoughts, in our minds, in our hearts, that Jesus was completely innocent and not guilty on the cross. So we see over and over again the innocence of Jesus. Back in verse 4, we hear the charges against Jesus, and, and, and Pilate himself came back out to the crowd before he sent him to uh, Herod, and, and he said, listen, he's, he's innocent. I find no guilt in this man. And, and they, they hated his answer. They didn't, they didn't want to hear truth. They didn't want to hear facts. They just threw out more charges, leveraged more things at Pilate, or threatened Pilate as well. And so Pilate sent him over to Herod, and the same thing. Herod found nothing. Herod found nothing. He couldn't find anything, so he just mocked him the whole time. And he let his boys beat him. He could, he could find nothing. Pilate was hoping that the problem would, would go away, sending him to, to Herod. And so the next thing that he could do in trying to release Jesus was to appease the crowd. Let me just appease the people. He gathers everyone together and, and he says, listen, I've, I've examined him. And, and, and listen, if he was truly guilty of misleading the people to rebel against Rome, don't you think it would be in my best interest to go ahead and have him crucified? He's guilty. He's, he's not guilty. He's, he's innocent. But, but I tell you what, we will, we will punish him instead. So he lays out this compromise, this appeasement that, that we will just punish him and release him. Now we would want to ask the question, why would you punish him if he's innocent? Well, again, that's the compromise. That's the appeasement. This is what Rome would do. In fact, this is what Pilate has done in the past. To appease the people, he will sacrifice one, including even in punishment, even just to punish them. He didn't care about justice but rather he cared to keep the peace. And we said last time, to protect himself, right? That's what politicians do. Their number one is them. They're not sacrificing themselves, they'll sacrifice others. 
So he is about keeping the peace. To him, it is a win-win, so he thought. But punishing Jesus would uh, only would, would, would not be enough for the crowd. It would not appease them. That is not a compromise that they wanted. What did they want? They wanted Jesus crucified. Away with this man. Crucify him. Crucify him. A second time, he reasons with them, right? Again, and they shout him down. Crucify, crucify him. And then Luke adds it up for us, right? He does, helps us out. He adds it up and he says, but a third time Pilate asks, why? What evil has he done? I found no guilt deserving death. I will punish and therefore release him. He's asking, what is your justification for this? Isn't he one of your own? He's innocent. I'll punish him. We'll move on. Let it go. And again, why is this so important? Why is this so important for us to understand? Why is it so important that Luke even counts for us? How many times Jesus is declared innocent by the leading Roman official in Judea? It is so important because, again, we must understand that when Jesus is on the cross, he is not there because he deserved it. He is, does not go to the cross. He is not on the cross because something in of himself says that he deserves it. Do you know how sometimes we, when we think of like a, um, uh, sometimes on criminal shows and things like that, where the, there's, there is this guy who's a real, a real bum, like a real scumbag, and he gets arrested, like this is usually toward the beginning of the show, and he gets arrested, and everybody thinks that was him that did it, but of course we've seen it, we're like, no, it's not him, but we still don't like him, but if he gets punished, by all means, let him get punished. That's, that's how we feel, right? Because if we, want, we want justice, right? It's kind of the thing of O.J. Simpson, that whole thing. We wanted justice, right? Well, Jesus is not like them at all. There's, there's nothing in him that we could say, well, he might have been innocent in this, but he's certainly guilty maybe in the past of something else. Jesus was not that. And Luke is telling us he is completely, completely, absolutely, entirely guiltless. So if you've ever asked the question or you know someone who has asked the question, why did Jesus die on the cross? The answer can never be because he was guilty. It never can be that. But rather, he is innocent. He is innocent of their chargers, and he is innocent of everything. He is sinless before man, and most importantly, he is sinless before God the Father. And he, we are meant to see that striking difference here. Meant to see the striking difference. He is innocent, sinless, pure, and spotless lamb that was crucified. We are meant to see this here so that when Jesus is on the cross, we would know that there has never been anyone ever who deserved the cross less than Jesus Christ. But so there, what does it tell us then? Luke is telling us that there's a whole lot more going on here than a criminal getting punished. There's a whole lot more going on here. So the first point, Jesus is innocent, though he will still die on the cross. But the second point in this passage then for us is we have to ask the question, then who is guilty? Who is guilty? If Jesus is innocent, who is guilty? Is anyone guilty here? Let's answer that question. 
A shift happens in the passage. Actually, a shift happens in, in the book of Luke, or the gospel of Luke here. That Jesus is now rejected not just by the religious leaders, but he is rejected now by everyone. Everyone is rejecting Jesus. It's not just the religious leaders anymore, but it's everyone. Jew and Gentile all reject Jesus. And this shouldn't surprise us because this is what we are told is what will happen. In fact, it's what happens throughout the scriptures. It's what has started in Genesis chapter 3, a rejection of God. Jesus told us that he would be rejected, but also Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with his grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteem him not. Or maybe John chapter 1. I love John chapter 1. And we know a lot of John chapter 1, and we're pretty familiar with the first five verses. And they go, they go, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, that shot, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We know those verses. Those are wonderful. But what about verse 9? The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus was completely rejected. And in verses 14 and 15, Pilate is explaining and giving the, the facts how he, as the official of all, the judge over this case here, has determined that Jesus is completely innocent. There's nothing in him deserving death, that their charges were false, their charges were, were fake. And what's the people's response? Verse 18, away with this man, release us Barabbas. Now this is what's crazy. This is what's crazy about the first thing, the whole thing. First, they condemn Jesus for blasphemy. And then they charge Jesus before Pilate for what? For insurrection. And then who do they ask to be released? An insurrectionist. This is what's insane and, and nuts about this whole thing. That's showing us here that there are deeper, sinful things at work in the heart of man. And the whole crowd yells out verse 21. They're chanting, crucify, crucify him. The third time, Pilate says, let me release him. Verse 23. I don't think he can tell us more descriptive here. Probably the words, he probably couldn't put the words in there because we would cringe at some of the words they were probably saying. He says, he just describes it. They were urgent and demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. You could imagine how bad it was getting. John tells us here that even the Jewish leaders were leveraging threats against Pilate himself, that he was an enemy of Caesar, and that they would tattletale on him if they did not kill him. Sentence Jesus to death. What in the world are we to make of this? Where does all this hatred and anger and vitriol for Jesus come from? How in the world did it shift so fast? We've seen progressively how much the religious leaders hated Jesus. 
and wanted to see him dead, but now it's everyone. It's not a matter of evidence, what the facts were presented, it didn't matter. In the eyes of everyone, Jesus was guilty. As much as we were meant to see the innocence of Jesus, we need to see this morning in this crowd that in man there is a natural enmity that all people have toward God. That he is guilty. That I'm the innocent one. That God is guilty, not me. That he's wrong, not me. He can't tell me what to do. Crucify him. Away with this man. Give us an insurrectionist or murderer. And when it came down to, to it that day, their choice. When it was their choice, who did man want? What does man want when it is given their choice? They would rather live with a murderer than the Son of God. R.C. Sproul unpacks this idea for us in his wonderful book, The Holiness of God. He was commenting on a sermon from Jonathan Edwards titled, Men Naturally God's Enemies. And Sproul helps us out by renaming cleverly for us that, that sermon to God in the Hands of Angry Sinners. And that's what's at play here. Carnal man, unconverted in their natural state, hates God. I don't know if it was last week, but in John chapter 2, I think we read something where Jesus saw the belief in the people, but Jesus would not trust himself to them because he didn't believe in them. Because he knew the hearts of man. And even though they're all rah-rah for Jesus, he knew their hearts. Humanity's sinful nature sets their posture as God's enemy. Actively and even passively. Now, this is hard for modern, modern minds to swallow. Because we have been taught so much of this the self-esteem of in you is how you succeed and, and you're the best and you're number one. And, and we've been taught all of these things. And so this is a hard concept for us to swallow. And, and sure, some could even admit that, hey, I'm a sinner and I've broken God's commands, but, but do people really hate God? And the answer to that question, overwhelmingly, the evidence from the Bible and overwhelmingly from the evidence of every single day, every single day in life is yes. There's no more evidence to the doctrine of sin and depravity than any other in the scriptures than this doctrine. For the sake of time, we'll look at one passage in general that, will, that tells us this. Romans 5.10 there's several places we can turn to, but look at Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more. Now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now Paul is talking to the church. This is, this is the church. And, and he and, and says, while we, 
right? So while we, so the, the church, while we were once enemies, we were once enemies, either actively or passively, before, before God's grace, we were enemies. We were all enemies. And what does Paul say? He says we needed reconciliation. We needed reconciliation. Well, reconciliation isn't necessary for those who are at peace with each other. Reconciliation is, is unnecessary if, if the two parties are in love with each other and they're just mutually getting together. No, Paul says we are enemies of God and we needed reconciliation only that comes from God. And as God's enemy, we hated humanity hates him, and we hate his authority. And again, that, that hatred doesn't always manifest itself in the, the worst evil and vilest ways that, we, that come to our mind. We, we don't naturally think everyone is being that bad. But again, that's according to our standards of righteousness. That's according to our standards of right and what's access accessible and what is good. But we must be reconciled to a God who is holy. Holy! Haters of God, all men outside of Christ, they're not just ardent militant atheists who shake their fists at the very notion of God. But listen to me, it is also the one who enjoys nature and admires the mountains and the bright stars and delights in the myriads of the wonders of this world. They even delight in their own family and their own children, and yet they have no thought to the majesty and the glory of God. None. We can also hate God in our religion. When some... When someone attributes all their justification is based upon what they can do and who they are or where they've come from or what they've done or what they have not done. Grace plus my love for God. Isn't that hating God when you reject salvation by grace alone through faith alone? Isn't that hating God? Hating his salvation that you need to add something to it. Here's what Dr. Sproul says. He says, we reveal our natural hostility for God by the, low, by the low esteem we have for him. We consider him unworthy of our total devotion. We take no delight in contemplating him. Even for the Christian, worship is often difficult and a prayer, a burdensome duty. Our natural tendency is to flee as far as possible from his presence. His word rebounds from our minds like basketball from a backboard. By nature, our attitude toward God is not one of mere indifference. It is posture of malice. We oppose his government and refuse his rule over, over us. Our natural hearts are devoid of affection for him, and they are cold, frozen to his holiness. By nature, by nature, the love of God is not in us. And Jonathan Edwards says that the reason why we hate God is because God is such a threat to our sinful desires. His holiness is a threat to our sinful desires, to what we want in the flesh. 
So think about this. Our hatred and our sinfulness is so deep outside of Christ that no amount of theology or philosophy or good books that we could read could ever change the dead heart outside of the grace of God. Nothing. Nothing could save us except the grace of God. And what did Jesus tell the chief priests and the scribes when he was arrested? He said, this is your hour of darkness. And what does man do? This is the greatest evidence of all. What does man do when God appears before them? He comes in the flesh and he lives a sinless life before them. And he turns himself over to them. What does man do when God is arrested? They don't simply kill him. They murder him with crowds screaming violently for his blood. It wasn't enough for him to be beaten and humiliated. No, he is crucified to the cross. That's what man does with Jesus. That's what humanity's an unregenerate state. That's what it looks like in the heart of man. That's what happens to God in the hands of angry sinners. You see, we may not have been physically in that crowd crying out, crucify him, crucify him. But in all the millions of ways that man has rejected God, showing their disdain and hatred, rejecting his sovereign rule over us, we might as well have been there. Sinful man is not neutral toward a holy God. He is a threat to our way of life. His holiness is a threat to our idols. And in light of that, he must be killed. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was innocent, and the guilty was everyone else. The guilty is everyone, all of humanity, including you and including me, who were once enemies with God. Now, number three, here comes the treasure. Because right now, the house is looking pretty shabby. Here comes the treasure. What takes place at the end of the passage is, is what Jesus is about to do for his people on the cross. Let me show you. Look at verse 18. Get a drink of water first. Verse 18. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. And then look again at verse 24. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Do you see the treasure? If you don't, let me explain it this way. Imagine what it would, what it would be like for Barabbas that day. You're sitting in a dark cell, your cell. And you're a murderer, and you know it. You're an insurrectionist, and, and you know it. And you spent enough time now in the cell that you know your one and only outcome when it comes to the Romans. The death of a gruesome cross. In your cell that day, you begin to hear all the stirring and the craziness going on outside. And maybe today was your day. A day 
of death. And then you hear everyone yelling in unison. It's getting louder and louder. Crucify! Crucify him! And it's getting louder and louder. It's seemingly more and more violent. And then a guard comes to your cell. And you know this is it. Reluctantly you stand. But you muster the courage to face what's coming. So be brave now. But instead of laying a cross on your shoulders, a guard turns you around and unlocks your shackles and sets you free. And he tells you to get out of here. Puzzled and confused, holding your wrists because the, shack the pain of the shackles that were once on your wrist, puzzled and confused of what's going on, you leave the jail and there's this huge crowd. They are cheering and they are watching and they are pointing and they're shaking their fists and you're like what's going on and you turn to see another man stumbling off under the weight of a cross a cross that you know that was meant for you what happened that day was Barabbas was given life and Jesus was chosen for death how shocking how shocking that Barabbas, who was totally and completely guilty, and there's no doubt in what he deserved waiting for his cross. But instead, Jesus went off to die in his place. The guilty men went free, the guilty man went free, and Jesus, the completely innocent. Do you see what Luke is telling us? That three times he was innocent. Here is now the, the innocent man carrying his cross, being treated now like the criminal. Barabbas should have been who, the one who was beat. Barabbas was the one who should have been shoved on the ground with thorns crushed on his head and his back shredded. But he looks up and he sees the, another man taking his cross. Brothers and sisters, we've seen our guilt in the crowd. But also how much we are also like Barabbas. Guilty, condemned, sinners, living in spiritual prison. Helpless, blinded, and bound, awaiting our judgment. But Jesus. Jesus was our substitute. The innocent and righteous who took our cross and judgment and wrath in our place. The theme of substitution is all over the Bible. It's the Passover. It's what's symbolized in, in, in the Lord's Supper. In, in this doctrine, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, brothers and sisters, is always under attack. Again, why? Because man's posture is one of rejecting God and his truth because he is holy. And as a holy God, he demands a holy and righteous sacrifice to be made. We needed a sinless substitute to propitiate the wrath of God toward us because we were enemies of God. The world hates it and hates this doctrine because it shows us the holiness of God and the depravity of man. Substitutionary atonement, brothers and sisters, is at the very heart of the gospel and must not be lost. 
And it's not just important because it's a good doctrine and because it's taught in the Bible. Surely it is very important for those reasons. But, but also, this doctrine, which all doctrine does, has a point to it. It is deep purposes for the Christian to, to believe. It is vital to the Christian life. Substitutionary atonement is vital to the Christian life. Number one, you have no gospel without it. Nothing. You might as well take your Bible and throw it out get rid of it. If you deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ, get rid of it because you're no longer Christian. You're something else that you've created in your own mind. Now, I'm not accusing you of that. There's other people who are like this, right? But it's vital to the Christian life. It's the heart of the gospel. That Jesus, who is, the, who is on the cross, was our sinless substitute. And if that's true, what does that do for our assurance? What does that do for our assurance if Jesus is our sinless substitute? Well, how else do you know without a shadow of doubt that you are loved and that you are accepted? Is it based upon your righteousness and your works? Is it because you've learned to live a moral life, have conservative values, being religious, reading your Bible, or going to church? Is that how you're accepted? I don't know about you, but I'd be in big trouble. Does God look down and say, you know, they look pretty good, especially compared to everyone else? Look how many times they go to church. And man, did you see them even reading their Bible last week? That's awesome. You know what the Bible tells us over and over? Is that there's nothing in us that makes us acceptable before a holy God. We just talked about it. We were enemies. We were haters of God and lovers of self. We were just like Barabbas. We were justifiably condemned to be judged because of our sin. So your assurance, brothers and sisters, and my assurance, and my acceptance before God is not conditioned upon you. And it is not conditioned upon me. Again, we are in trouble if that's the case. And our assurance would be what? It would be weak, as weak as a wet paper towel. Not the bounty kind, but the cheapo one. Or how about a wet tissue? A wet toilet paper. You ever tried to hold anything in that? Doesn't work. That's how weak your assurance would be. But if we are accepted based upon the person and work of Christ and Christ alone, not I, but Christ in me, but now you have assurance. And now you have an assurance that is unshakable. Now you have upon this rock I will build my house. Your acceptance, your assurance, your justification, your salvation, your sanctification, and one day, praise God, your glorification is not based upon you, but it's based upon Jesus as your substitute who took your place that day. And so if you're struggling this morning with your acceptance before God, then have no fear because your acceptance before God is only on the basis of what Jesus has done, and he said it is finished. And that changes everything. That's the change. That's, that's, that's where the whole change in our Christian relationship and relationship with the Lord, because now we are no longer enemies. That's why Paul said, while we were once enemies, past tense, we are now what? 
been reconciled to God. Ha! How? Because Jesus was our substitute. That's your acceptance. That is how you are good and how you are righteous now, this morning, because of the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to you because Christ was your substitute. And on the cross, he bore in himself every one of our sins, every one of your sins, in the past, in the present, in the future. And that's why he looks at his church and he says, Beloved, not enemy. Salvation, grace, and the kingdom of God, we have seen throughout the Gospel of Luke, is not for good people. It's not for good people who think they deserve it. Grace and salvation, as we have seen in Luke's Gospel, goes to the worst of the worst and the biggest losers. Levi the tax collector, the prostitute who comes and washes Jesus' feet, the other tax collector in Jesus' parable who's praying outside of the temple. And nowhere clear is it seen that day except when Jesus died. He died for the very people that hated him. People who wanted him dead. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one, had, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were, we were reconciled to God by his death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what great assurance and joy we have in Christ and in Christ alone. Thank you, Lord for sending your Son, the innocent, pure, spotless, sinless one, who lived a perfect life, who fulfilled the law completely, who was the pure and spotless Lamb, who was sacrificially atoning the wrath of God that was due toward me. It was due toward us. Thank you for that substitute. Thank you for sending your son. And Lord, help me to always remember my place there. That while we were once enemies, that I was once a hater of God, even in my childishness. <coughs> and even in my own low thoughts and esteem for you. I was a hater in my own self-righteousness. I was a hater. But by your grace, by your grace, Lord, you have saved many of us this morning.
And to that you receive, you do all the glory and all the praise. We exalt you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.